Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Good morning, everyone. This is the 7th of November, and this is Mornings with Carmen. And obviously, as I say often when I substitute for her, by the sound of my voice, Paul Perot, I am clearly not Carmen LeBurge. Clearly. Clearly not. I am. You got a shinier head. I do have a shinier head. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly on that as well. I am Dr. Peter Kapsner back in the studio host chair here this morning with all of you and grateful to be doing so. I love being in here with you, Paul Perot, and with you and listeners all around our country that continue to follow Jesus in the very best way that we can, sometimes stumbling, sometimes falteringly, but uh, always trying to keep our eyes fixed in that place. And so it's a delightful way to start the day as you're grabbing your cup of coffee, maybe getting your kids off to school, possibly up with some devotions, praying for your grandkids. Whatever it is you're doing here at this hour, we are glad to be with you. And Paul, you know that uh, my family has had sort of a unique opportunity this fall to spend sort of a homeschool semester abroad, as it were. My kids are homeschooled. And uh, we have uh, longtime partnerships and friendships in Scotland from mm-hmm. my time in school over there. And so just families and friends kind of took us in over there and, and uh, had an opportunity to be there for a few months. And a really sweet thing happened that reminded me that this kingdom of Jesus in which we walk, in which we serve, really is eternal, really does persist and exist uh, before us and beyond us and gives us a lot of hope. And it, and it manifests itself this last weekend where a young man that I've known since he was four years old, he was my son Caleb's very best friend over there, he uh, at now maybe maybe 21 years old, got baptized this last weekend. Mm, wonderful. And just really sweet to see somebody. I mean, you and I are like 150 years old combined or whatever we are. I mean, our, our time on this oh, earth, that, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be coming to an end and and as it does. But uh, what I love and what's so inspiring about that is that there's continued people that will say yes to this deal of following Jesus. The world is a tough place. We cover a lot of the headlines on the show mm-hmm. each morning. That can be difficult and somewhat troubling. But it's always amazing to me that no matter how troubled things get in this world, there is this kingdom that people say yes to that really can bring hope and peace and joy. Uh, not perfectly all the time in this life, but it really is the only anchor that we have in which to walk. And it's part of what we celebrate every morning on the show. Yeah, it is really difficult as we, you know, oftentimes we, we, we're so focused on our us and now the church has been around for thousands of years. Right. And if you want to include the people of Israel before that, I mean, it's been around for or thousand some years, God has been doing something in this world through those through us. Yeah. And actually, it's hit me this past weekend. Of course, um, Sunday was the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Right. And when spending some time with some others praying, it kind of hit me. You know, oftentimes we say, let's pray for the Chinese Christians or let's pray for the Iranian Christians. Or the, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's pray for the Christians. That's the first identifier. It always should be. That is our ultimate kingdom. That is is our ultimate allegiance. So these are our brothers and sisters. Yes, they're living in China, but they are part of our kingdom. Yeah, and the brothers and sisters piece of it that you reference, it just there there is a connection between us. There is a community of faith walking this out. Sometimes we do feel a bit disconnected, but that does bring in this Hebrews 12 passage I wanted to start with this morning that does talk about the idea of a great cloud of witnesses. And so it says in this, therefore, since you and I, all of us, all of us listening are 
are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, running with perseverance the race marked out for us and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so as we get started here this morning, I'm mornings with Carmen and Ben Johnson, one of my favorite people in the world, will be joining us after a short break. Uh, let's continue to do that. And whatever we're doing in our life, wherever we're headed for the morning, lift up your eyes for just a moment and fix your eyes on our King. My right, a right given by God to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ten minutes past the top of the hour, and that music, of course, means that Ben Johnson, good friend of the program for a very long time now, would be joining us to talk about some of the different headlines in the world today. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. It's always great to hear your voice. And part of what we just talked about here a second ago, the idea that we are part of this great kingdom together. There's uh, nothing I'm more grateful than people like you to walk this journey out with, that we can talk about these things. And even though you and I are separated by geography and we don't talk as much as I would like, knowing that we're in the same kingdom together really does hearten the soul, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, we're we're sitting here hundreds of miles apart, and it sounds like we're in the same room together with all of our listeners but uh, this this church, this kingdom of God extends across geography, across time, across space and ethnicity, and it, it truly includes all of the children of God, everyone who's embraced Jesus Christ. We've, with God as our Father, we're all brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, the reminder that we work with each morning here as we deal with some of the headlines, and there's quite a bit to cover that you and I can get into. And uh, one of the things that I've noted of interest here in the past six to nine months has to do with ongoing conversations, obviously, about climate change, and we have some sort of apocalyptic pronouncements by certain members of different political camps, including that the world is going to uh, basically end in 10 to 12 years if we don't get our head around all of that. We see that Jane Fonda just came out saying the same thing the other day. And so there's a lot of concern about climate change. And there's also a lot of concern about global population. And so some of the headlines that came out recently are along the lines of we need to stop having children. We need to not keep expanding the population base in this globe. And I'd be curious your thoughts on some of that, because over the last hundred or so years, the the world has gone from one billion or two billion people up to north of seven, eight billion people. And at some point, the world itself and the finite resources can't sustain this kind of population growth. So how, how are you thinking about this, Ben? Well, you're right. There was a statement uh, put out this week by 11,000 climate scientists saying that uh, the population has to be stabilized at a certain level, and ideally it has to fall in in their view in order for uh, natural resources to keep up. Now, the trick being that uh, all of this is premised on our current consumption of natural resources. And if you go back into history, the same argument has been made for hundreds of years by economists going back to an economist named Thomas Malthus. Uh, who believed that uh, the the world population was, was essentially at its peak at that time. And uh, several of his followers, who, who would be called Malthusians, have said that uh, population is maxing out our global resources, and so population must be reduced. What this doesn't take into account is the fact that people have one mouth but two hands, and mm. that means that they're able to build more resources, or they have a brain in order to find out how they can use those resources more more skillfully, in order to go for to go uh, further on fewer resources, so uh, if you just take a look at the raw numbers of this, for example, the IPCC report, the one that everyone says proves that we have 12 years or the world will will end if we don't change everything, 
actually prices the entire thing out in dollar terms. Uh, it says that if we do nothing, what it calls the no policy baseline scenario, which is that not a single policy is changed, uh, we continue to have global population growth, we continue to have the same consumption of resources, uh, it will cost about 2.6% of uh, global GDP over the next few years. On the other hand, uh, the cost of a falling uh, the same the same day that the uh, eleven thousand scientists and uh, uh, social uh, the, uh, the uh, social commentators released this statement, Bloomberg News released a story called "The Global Fertility Crash," which talks about the uh, the fact that uh, if you take a look at, for example, in um, the IMF came up with a um, a statistic showing that in the UK alone, public health spending was going to increase. 163% of GDP during the mm. same time period if, if they don't start having more children. So, so children, uh, children consume natural resources. At the same time, human ingenuity shows that we're able to extend resources each generation, allowing for more people to be born into the planet. Is this part of what is motivating some of the shooting for the stars mentality we're seeing right now with people like Elon Musk to be able to build spacecraft and maybe ultimately get to other planets? And I, and if so, I don't understand why. I mean, I don't know life on Mars, but I, I've seen the movie Martian and Matt Damon. It doesn't seem like it's terribly <laughs> sustainable on the planet Mars. Like what we do need to look at how to make the Earth more sustainable as opposed to maybe shooting into the cosmos, from my understanding. I think that would definitely be a better use of our resources. <laughs> it's certainly much easier to try and try and save the planet we've got instead of branching off into new ones. But, but yeah, Elon Musk uh, has has got this, uh, and and others uh, have have looked at expanding into other planets in order to make this population more sustainable. It's funny though, you know, Elon Musk and uh, Jack Ma, who's the founder of Alibaba, were at a conference uh, in China. And uh, Elon Musk said, most people think we have too many people on the planet, but actually that's an outdated view. Uh, he said that uh, actually in uh, the world that we'll face in 20 years, the biggest problem the world will face is population collapse. And Jack Ma agreed. So really the, the idea that we have too many people uh, is is part of the issue. But uh, uh, I think for Elon Musk, uh, it's it's about conquering the next frontier in space and, and trying his best to, to put his own brand on our expansion while we do it. And Ben, what does this teach us about stewardship in general? Because stewardship is the idea of looking into the future and acting in the present on behalf of the future. But that that can be done uh, well and with responsibility, but it can also be done with a lot of worry and a lot of concern. And and I at least am seeing increasing, increasingly so young people filled with a lot of anxiety about their future because of some of these apocalyptic sort of pronouncements. So how do, how do we do this stewardship well, looking into the future, being responsible, but not being alarmist? Look. You've put your finger on exactly the dichotomy that we need to have. You know, Jesus said, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And so much of the rhetoric is designed in order to scare us into action. Mm. And anyone who's familiar with the psychology behind that knows that uh, if you're using high-pressure sales tactics, it's usually because there's a defect with the product. So the, the first condition would be to slow down, look at the underlying data, but then look at uh, the, the underlying policy and the curve of history. Every single generation, we find ways to use fewer resources. Just to give one example, we, we all have one in our pocket right now, which is the fact that uh, in, in the old days, the, th the things that your cell phone would do would be done by about seven different appliances, and all of them would cost several hundred dollars. But not only would it cost a lot of money, but it would take a lot of resources to build them all. It would take plastic and, and uh, various components and different factories to run and different emissions into the environment to create all of those products. Now it's all in one phone, most of it run by one microchip. It, it's all right there in your pocket because of human ingenuity. 
So, so don't discount the role of mankind thinking God's thoughts after him, trying to unlock the, uh, the secrets of the resources that God has given us. And uh, so anytime that we're tempted to despair, anytime that we want to say that the future is over, uh, or if we want to give up on having children, remind ourselves that children, children are a heritage of the Lord. Blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them, mm. uh, that the next generation could very well be the generation that solves the way for the next population uh, expansion to take place without harming the environment. Mm-hmm. It's the wise voice of Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute joins us regularly here on Thursday mornings. And Ben, when we come back here in just a moment, I'd love to change the conversation to what is sort of a disturbing rise in what seems to be increasing anti-Semitism around the globe. And I'd love to get your perspective on that next. So stay with us. More to come here on Mornings with Carmen. Twenty minutes after the top of the hour, I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, who's away uh, with some uh, family business. I think she lost uh, an, a great aunt or not, and yeah, uh, so yeah. prayers with Carmen this morning. I know she was uh, emailing us last night, and always good to hear from her. And we're chatting with Ben Johnson this morning about some of the headlines around our world relevant to us as believers. And Ben, one of the things that I've noted over the past six months or so has been uh, different countries, all of them saying the same sort of thing, that there's they're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism. And I know we had a good friend of ours over about a week ago, and she's Jewish and, and uh, lives here locally in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And without any prompting about the conversation, she began to talk about what she's been experiencing recently, which is a, a lot of subtle and sometimes very overt anti-Semitic kinds of statements. And of course, this is something that has persisted for as long as the Jewish nation has persisted, that there's been sort of this anti-Jewish kind of strain that happens in this world, but it sure seems like it's on the increase right now. And statistically, uh, that would be true. You know, the Anti-Defamation League says not only is it on the rise globally, it's on the rise here in the United States. Uh, Tax on Jewish people in the United States actually doubled between 2017 and 2018, according to the ADL statistics they hold online. Of course, we can think of horrific attacks like uh, the attacks on uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh or the Poway Synagogue in California. Uh, Attacks on Jewish people around the world are undoubtedly uh, increasing. And as a matter of fact, just this morning, the uh, UK Labour Party held its uh, one of its uh, conferences, the uh, Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, at the end opened up for some questions. The Labour Party has had a row for years over anti-Semitism because of uh, its leader's very cozy relationship with uh, certain international uh, terrorist organizations. And uh, a rather inoffensive question was asked about what uh, the party might do to repair its image. And it drew this massive round of boos that even acknowledging the, the problem was was problematic for them. Uh, there's no question whatever that statistically there is a, a global rise in anti-Semitism, uh, both here and around the world. Europe, uh, you see particularly uh, uh, certain parties that uh, have, have taken a, a view uh, that is certainly an issue, but uh, there's also a, a general low-level anti-Semitism uh, bubbling under the surface and sometimes not that very far under the surface. And uh, my Jewish friends report the same thing that yours do, that there's a general increase in the hostility that they've been experiencing over the last few years. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, the, the first most obvious one, since everything gets blamed on the Internet, we, we should as well, but this is this is legitimate. In the old days, if you wanted to read anti-Semitic propaganda, you had to subscribe to certain newspapers, have them delivered in secret, or uh, go to meetings with with people in cornfields in the middle of the night. Today, you just get on the Internet, and you can drink in all the poison that your soul can handle. 
Uh, and you've seen these international shooters have inspired one another. Anders Bering Breivik, who was the uh, shooter in Norway a few years ago, inspired the shooter uh, at the uh, uh, inspired, I think, both the uh, shooting in New Zealand uh, on the synagogue or on the uh, mosque, but also some of the synagogue shooters. And they've inspired one another in their various manifestos. Uh, you see dark web communities that are under uh, the radar, sub rosa, uh, although they are infiltrated at, at various times by law enforcement. I think another issue is just socialism in general or collectivism because it, it tends to stoke envy. Uh, Jewish people invest very heavily in education, and right now we're in an education economy. Uh, the person who is the uh, chief rabbi under Margaret Thatcher of the UK, Emmanuel Jakobowicz, went on to um, be in Israel as well wrote this beautiful uh, document back in the 1980s when the uh, Church of England uh, was talking about poverty in, in um, the inner city in London. He wrote a, a rejoinder just saying, and this is a quotation, how did we break about, out of our ghettos and enter the mainstream of society and its privileges? Certainly not by riots and demonstrations. Above all, we worked on ourselves, not on others. We gave a better education to our children than anybody else had. We channeled the ambition of our youngsters to academic excellence not flashy cars. Mm. So they, they found that uh, educating themselves was incredibly important. And if you believe that everything is based on unearned privilege, that the system is rigged, and you find that uh, a certain certain ethnicity tends to be overrepresented, then you, you certainly become anti-Semitic, and that's what's happening around the world. Instead of rewarding them for uh, the incredible investments they've made in themselves and their children and their education, suddenly they're the target of envy. You know, uh, the Christians have always said envy is one of the seven deadly hmm. sins. And uh, St. John Cashin, uh, who was the one who compiled that list, by the way, and I think it was the fourth century, said that uh, envy is a food of the soul that is a food of the mind that poisons the soul as we drink it in. So uh, I, I think that it's important that we recognize one of the taproots of uh, this anti-Semitism is envy. And any time that it can be personalized or otherized and uh, it can be given a, a, a face that looks different than ours, that's where uh, real prejudice begins to leak in. Yeah, for sure, Ben. We just have a couple of minutes left. I'd be curious your thoughts. Uh, obviously, uh, with our Jewish friends, uh, we sort of are swimming in the same river of faith in terms of the scriptures and the story, and yet there is a fundamental difference uh, that can't be papered over in terms of the belief of what happened with the cross and the empty tomb and who Jesus was. H how do we navigate those relationships as Christians with our Jewish friends? Do you have any suggestions for that? Uh, I, I begin every situation uh, the same way that I, I would any other. You begin with prayer, and uh, you keep that on a on a personal level, on a personal basis. And uh, any any time that uh, if if someone is open to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm I'm certainly willing to share if they are if they are interested. But when where it comes to uh, particularly our Jewish brothers and sisters, uh, many of them uh, may may have come uh, up from a religious home, but the vast majority are, would, would describe themselves as secular, uh, particularly American Jews. They, they would say that uh, although they, they may have observed uh, one or two ordinances, uh, for the most part, they, they were from a secular background, and they are longing for, for something. So even connecting them with, um, with the scriptural basis of their holidays uh, is a way to open the door for them to understanding the Bible, understanding the Scripture, and uh, if, if they have an interest in that, then taking that arc forward uh, to its uh, ultimate fulfillment. Mm, it's great stuff, Ben. Always great to hear your voice and the wisdom that you offer, and uh, appreciate the time. Look forward to the next time we can catch up again, but thanks for joining us here on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. God bless, Peter. 
Take a short break here and uh, some bottom of the hour news when we come back for the second half of this hour. We're going to have a pretty intriguing conversation with uh, a local professor here who teaches conservative political theory in a very liberally minded institution and what that means in terms of inviting us all to sort of better critically think about what we think about as opposed to just joining the herds in different camps and, and how that can help bridge the divide. So lots more to come here in the first hour of Mornings with Carmen. Paul, that is some great music for some lighter headlines here in the morning. And, of course, when I walked into the studio this morning, you you looked a bit sort of disappointed, a little I down. Dabra was down a little bit. And a stuff. little and it was, bit. There, there was some news coming out of Detroit, of course, uh, where we see the Ford Motor Company has changed gears, uh, so to speak. As it were. As it were, with, with its iconic muscle car, the Ford Mustang, which, I mean, you buy I the Mustang the for the sound, for the noise, for, yes. the, for the acceleration. Uh-huh. It is turning it into an electric vehicle, and you seem to be quite disturbed by this no. idea. Yeah. No. So, so, so <laughs> I mean, this is happy days. This is 1950s, 60s. This is like sort of the reminder of the exactly. good times, right? And now we're turning it electric, and, and you just... Leave, Leave it for up. Tesla, right? Isn't that what you're saying? Uh, exactly. Tesla's doing great. Let them have that lane. But, uh, you know, there's... I mean, we're, we're what? A week away from uh, Ford versus Ferrari, the movie? I mean, right. it's we're talking iconic stuff here. You don't miss what... Don't mess with it. Uh, I'm sure by the time we get to Fast and Furious 15, Vin Diesel will be in the electric uh, Mustang <laughs> at that point. So that'll okay, die. if Vin Diesel can rock an electric vehicle, then I might. I think that's very fair. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff this morning here. Uh, we'll certainly cover more of the news uh, later in the morning. But up next on Mornings with Carmen, as I referenced earlier, we'll be joined by Andrew Latham, who's a professor here locally at McAllister College. And he teaches a very intriguing class on conservative political theory in the context of a very liberal institution. And uh, what we can learn from that, we're we just have dialogue across both sides, and maybe we can actually learn from one another. So stay tuned. More to come here. Come here on Mornings with Carmen. The other day, just for fun, I did an online search using the word happiness. I was astounded at how many books, articles, podcasts I found. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, we read and talk a lot about happiness, but what about contentment? Maybe not so surprising. I couldn't find many books about that. But between happiness and contentment, I think one can bring a lot more joy to your life. In my mind, there's a big difference. Happiness is a fleeting feeling, like I'm happy today because I got my promotion at work. But contentment, well, it's more lasting. It's I know I have enough, no matter what my current situation is. Contentment is a steady, peaceful feeling. Contentment doesn't mean you're settling for less. It means you understand that all you have is a gift from God and that you get to use those gifts wisely, whether they are many or few. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Joined at this time by Dr. Andrew Latham, who's a professor of political science at McAllister University, just down the road from where we are here in studio. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. 
Great to have you on the program. Appreciate you joining us. I know that we are very intrigued by a class that you teach, by some articles that you've written recently, and uh, even some of your commentary on what uh, former President Barack Obama had to say about the cancel culture. So as we get into this conversation about the importance of starting to bridge some of the divides between us where we're in these isolated, very divisive kinds of camps, I'd be curious what your initial response was to President Obama's article that suggested that some of what's happening out there that is allegedly social justice oriented is actually just simply trying to shut people down and shut the conversation down. And that really isn't helpful for us as human beings. No, no. And my first response was, I wish I had said this over the last, over his eight years in office. Right. That would have been uh, nice. I see this, and we'll get into this a little bit later in the, in the chat. Um, I see this as a manifestation of this Gnosticism that I talk about in the Touchstone article. Uh, the belief that there is this this uh, intellectual, cognitive, spiritual elite and they have uh, uh, extraordinary insight and learning and knowledge, and they know what's right, and everybody else is either wrong or stupid or evil, and they need to be brushed aside. And they can be brushed aside by the state in certain circumstances, but they can be brushed aside through this uh, new institution, social institution of canceling, right? They're simply not going to afford this person, sometimes called deplatforming in a different context. We're not going to give them a platform to speak their views because they are either wrong or retrograde or bigoted or stupid or evil or something like that. Not simply different, right, which would be the grounds for a disagreement and a debate and a dialogue, but uh, evil or retrograde or bigoted, as I said. Um, I was pleased, though, that he ultimately, the president, President Obama, ultimately stepped up and said, look, this is not the way forward. He's lucky, though. He can't be canceled. By virtue of who he is. Right. But, if he, but if anybody else were to say that in that platform, you can be sure that they would have been canceled. Yeah, and especially given the social media and, and just sort of the toxicity that's happening there. And the article you reference is in Touchstone Magazine called Liberalism Occupied, the Rise of the Gnostic Liberal State After Christianity. I know I texted that article to my wife and to my university uh, age child as well, and they're very intrigued by the article. I want to get into that in just a minute, but you just said something I think that's really important to at least wonder about, is that when we move past philosophical or theological difference and into the moralization of calling the other side evil or bigoted or something like that, that really does set the foundation to then have what in your own mind is a moral justification to shut them down, to drive them out. And this really is the seedbed of sort of soft or even sometimes very hot war, is it not? I think so. I think so. You know, I read the trade uh, rags, like I'm sure you do, uh, inside higher ed and the Chronicle. And mercifully, we've been spared the worst excesses at McAllister. Um, but you look at Middlebury and you look at Evergreen and some of these other places. And it's quite clear that it's, it's the sound of one hand clapping. Um, there is no dialogue. There is no discussion across differences. There is no attempt to find a middle ground or even a modus vivendi. It is, you are wrong, you are bad, and you must go. And that is not the, the foundation, the, the, uh, sort of the basis for a healthy democracy. Uh, it's not the basis for a healthy higher education environment either. Uh, as I tell my students, once you leave the McAllister bubble, you're going to be surprised to discover that 50% of this country does not think exactly like you do. Mm. And, and how are you going to deal with that? 
And I think that's even referenced in your classes and ability for some of these students to start coming together. And the importance of that is, and I know that uh, I went down to President Trump's rally in Minneapolis a few weeks ago as a media member and sort of stood there and, and, and watched everything. But you, you did, on the other side of this, there is 20,000 people in the Target Center that really seem to have basically one way of thinking. And, and so the opposite side, not just the liberal side that does this canceling, but there was very much part of that on the conservative side. And, and part of what your class does is it invites kids to actually think about, and there might actually be merit to other points of view besides one's own. I think that's right. And what I do in that, that course on liberal and conservative political thoughts, there's two halves of the course. The first half is all the, the classical liberal tradition. And that culminates in an exercise, why I am or am not a classical liberal. And a big chunk of the students identify with that tradition, although they don't fully understand it, even after I enlightened them. Um, and, and a few rejected on Marxist and feminist grounds and whatnot. But it's an interesting exercise. But more interesting is at the end of the conservative module, they're asked the same question, why I am or am not a conservative. The answers there are fascinating. Almost nobody self-identifies as a conservative. But they all come away from the course with concepts like unintended consequences hmm. and the interconnectedness of this institution and that institution. I talked about Chesterton's dance, um, which I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with. Um, an awful lot. You know, the whole idea that there are two kinds of people in the world. One person approaches a field, in the middle of the field there's a fence, and it appears to be doing nothing. And that person says, tear it down, it's doing nothing. And that's the liberal progressive impulse. And then a conservative shows up and sees this fence, the same fence in the middle of the same field, it appears to be doing nothing. And he says, leave it there. Somebody put it there for a reason. And we don't fully understand it, but just leave it there. And I think you can see the parallels to social institutions like marriage, for example, and others. Um, so they come away from that course with a better appreciation of some of those core conservative insights, and they incorporate it into their worldview to some extent, even though they do not become conservatives. And that's not my job. My job is not to evangelize conservatism, mm -hmm. um, but it's to put options on the table and to provide them with insights from a different tradition. Than to. And when you first started this class, you sort of thought that maybe you'd get seven, eight, ten students or so, but it, it sure sounds like uh, semester after semester it's oversubscribed. Did that surprise you a bit to see how many students might be interested to come to a class like this? It, it really did surprise me. As I, as I confessed to the president in that, uh, that video online, I thought it was going to be an easy, um, an easy semester. Uh, there'll be two or three or four, maybe six sort of closeted uh, conservatives who would sneak into the class, you know, twice a week. Um, but no, no, it's been much more. And it's not me because I don't even recognize three quarters of the students. So it can't, it can't be me. It's the content. Uh, they're really curious and they're really hungry. Uh, in their own minds, before they get to the class, I think they, they think that conservatives, there's some, it's a mental illness, right? <laughs> 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 or, or, or certainly a moral failure uh, for, the, you know, for the nth degree. And they come away from the course, I think, you know, this is me kind of projecting, but I think they come away from that course with a greater appreciation for difference, uh, intellectual, maybe even theological difference, um, that I think is healthy. So I, I see my job as planting seeds. You know, we can aspire to know more than that, really. Um, but the seeds are beginning to, uh, I, don't, I don't want to torture the metaphor, but, but good things seem to be happening as a result.
Hmm. Talking with uh, Dr. Andrew Latham this morning, who's a professor of political science at McAllister College. And Andrew, when we come back from break in just a moment, we'd love to get into this article that you wrote that could help somebody like me who trends more uh, conservatively in his political thinking, but also for some of our listeners, too, to maybe understand a bit more about what constitutes liberalism in terms of the historical sense to help us even understand and possibly bridge some of those divides. And I want to ask you as well, given some of your ties to Great Britain growing up, uh, what we see even overseas in the Brexit situation and how some of these differences are manifesting not not just in the United States, but globally as well. So stay with us. More to come here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the morning and tomorrow morning as well for Carmen, who is away. And we're having an interesting conversation with Dr. Andrew Latham this morning from McAllister College, just about some of the political divides that we have and bridging these ideas. And some of that comes simply from understanding one another more clearly. And Andrew, of course, we see these political divides not uh, only in the United States, but we see it pretty substantially in Great Britain right now with sort of this ongoing Brexit drama uh, that really is at its core a divide politically in terms of the future of the country. You were born in England, from what I understand. You've had quite a journey. So tell us a little bit about how you're following this situation, even globally, and your own experience with it. Well, I, I do follow British politics, not as closely as I follow American ones. Uh, obviously, that's, uh, that's not possible. But I am intrigued by what's going on, not just in the U.K., uh, but in uh, France and Italy uh, as well. And it's of a piece that manifests differently in these different na- national settings. But here's the theme. Here's the thread that pulls all these things together. There are intellectual, political, social elites in these countries who think they know better than everybody else. The whole notion of gnosis, right, which Mm -hmm. is the root of Gnosticism, which is the secret enlightenment, the secret knowledge that is superior to everybody else's knowledge. And the political project of the European Union, for example, um, not initially, it was a a Christian project initially. You'll look at the the EU flag and you'll see resonances of uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that's that's her 12-star thing. Um, But in recent decades, it has become a Gnostic project. And you look at the reaction in Britain to the the largest turnout for any election ever in the United Kingdom, and it was decisively in favor of leading the United Kingdom. And it was a grassroots reaction to these Gnostic elites who think they know better than everybody else. And the disdain with which that elite has treated the Brexiteers, the people who want to leave, the Brits who want to leave the UK, it's just dripping with contempt mm. because those, those people, those people, those working class people, those people who are not part of the elite simply don't get it according to this um, intellectual vanguard. And we see that in France as well. And it can manifest itself in a healthy way and it can manifest itself in an ugly reaction. Sometimes in France and in Italy, the reaction is very ugly. So far in Britain, it hasn't been. The National Front is totally marginalized. It's <clears throat> not really a player. Uh, the, the kind of worst manifestation is Nigel Farage, and he doesn't scare me all that much. <laughs> well, and it's interesting you reference the idea of gnosis, and that really is something that uh, was the heart of some of early Christian heresy and what the Christian Church had to deal with in the first and second century. Even the Gospel of John and the first letters of John were written specifically to combat the idea that there is a secret knowledge available only to sort of the few and the elected and the elite along those lines, and they become sort of the guardians or keepers of this knowledge, and they begin to impose their will on everybody else because of the knowledge. And again, the scriptures had to deal with that from a theological standpoint. But was this meant to be the heart of liberalism? You talk a bit about liberalism as a philosophy in this article that you wrote. And was, was this sort of secret knowledge and this elitism part of it initially, or did we kind of grow into this place? 
Yeah, so the, the piece makes the following argument, which is that there is this core of liberalism. We can call it an essence. I wouldn't call that because it's a bad word um, around McAllister. But essentially, what is liberalism? And it's a belief in, first of all, individualism, right? The individual matters more than the collective. And we should all grow into the person. I would say the person that God calls us to be, but that's not really what the liberals say. It's just who you are meant to be. Egalitarianism. Uh, what I call meliorism, which is the improvement um, of the human condition over time, the material improvement, and of course, emancipation, to be freed from all external constraints. Those, that's the core, the essence, the heart of liberalism. And the, and the argument I'm trying to make is that, because Patrick Benin, for example, is arguing that liberalism is kind of eating itself to death. Now, its DNA was rotten with the hyper-individualism, and we're entering an illiberal era. And I'm, I'm simplifying his argument, and we're having him on campus in February, so I'll have this out with him uh, face-to-face. <laughs> He'll win because he's a superstar, and, uh, and I'm not. But in any case, um, <laughs> this, this liberalism touches down in very specific um, political, social context, and that shapes the way it looks. So liberalism in the revolutionary moment in 1776, which is about robust protections of individual rights, because they were fearful of the tyrannical British state, and the possibly potentially tyrannical American state. So they built in the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, and then and the no longer relevant Third Amendment. You can have your students uh, look that one up. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so it matters. And if you fast forward to the early 20th century, you know John Dewey and the progressives are liberals, but it's a different kind of liberalism because their anxieties are different. They're looking at urbanization <clears throat> and moral degeneracy and, and industrialization and all these things. And so they have a different take on, on liberalism. But in both those cases, the ambient background conditions are Christianity. Um, a Christianity which has a kind of biblical anthropology. Here's what human nature is, and it doesn't change. They have fixed ideas about the naturalness of the um, nuclear family, for example. Um, they embed the individual human being in a web of obligations to God and society and the country, the tree, and so on and so forth. In other words, Christianity tempers the potentially destructive uh, dynamics, inner dynamics of liberalism. Because liberalism left to its own devices, you get hyper-individualism, hyper-egalitarianism, utopianism, and what George Weigel calls the, uh, uh, the imperial sovereign self, like emancipation. Nobody, there are no constraints on the human being. Right? Yeah, and I think... Yeah, I was just going to reference that. I think what you're what you're su- suggesting here is such an important point in the hyper individualism that if it isn't tempered by some of the historic Christian institutions or institutions in general, like family or like just sort of organizational culture, we really can end up in some pretty wonky places. And I don't know about your students, uh, Andrew, but mine are reporting increasingly in this embrace of hyper-individualism that they feel lonely and isolated and anxious, confused, don't have a sense of identity, all of these different things that do happen because we are meant to be in relationship with one another. Well, that's right. And if you look at uh, spending on, on mental health in higher education, especially issues around uh, depression and anxiety, um, it, it's going through the roof. I mean, I talked to our president a few years ago, and he said, it's, it's just impossible to keep up with, with the demand for these services. Um, so so there's that, but uh, just to complete the story, um, <clears throat> you've alluded to it already, which is once you take Christianity, the guardrails of Christianity out of the equation, uh, that's bad enough. That leaves liberalism, the inner dynamic of liberalism, to sort of go berserk. But then you throw in the Gnostic piece, and it actually um, positively amplifies all of the bad elements. 
of, um, of liberalism. So whereas Christianity tempered, the Gnostic heresy amplifies all of the bad uh, potentials within the liberal tradition. And so I'm sure your audience is scratching its collective head and wondering what Gnosticism is. And in the piece, I provide a pretty pithy, I think, uh, I draw on some great thinkers, but uh, there are three basic elements to Gnosticism in the second century and today. The first one is self-deification, the glorification and divinization of the human being, the human self. The second one is called by one scholar Prometheanism, the valorization of the human world's potential for heroic defiance of authority. You know, when Prometheus brought fire down from the gods, he basically uh, cocked the snook at, at the gods and said, I'm not following your, your orders. I'm going to take this fire down uh, to humanity. And the final one, which is the scary one, well, they're all scary, uh, <laughs> van, vanguardism, the belief that human nature and society can be perfected, not merely made better, right? That's the meliorism, but perfected by, uh, under the leadership of that spiritual and cognitive elite with all those special insights and that hidden knowledge. Um, when, you, when you add liberalism and Christianity, in particular national and historical context, you get good things. When you add liberalism in a particular historical context today in the West to Gnosticism, you get the craziness that we're experiencing on an individual level in terms of mental health issues and meaninglessness, um, but also collectively in terms of this notion that we can remake human nature. Right? Christians don't believe that. We have a human nature. We're governed by natural law and divine law. And these are the guardrails that are built into uh, that Christianity builds into the liberal project. They're not only gone now, but there's bad stuff happening that's making the bad stuff in liberalism even worse. Mm. Think about think about how many times a day uh, you encounter somebody um, uh, in your personal private life or in public life who's telling you that human nature can be remade, that men can be women, for example. Mm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not judging individuals, um, right. but I'm saying as a culture, we now believe that men can be women. If that's not changing human nature, I don't know what is. And I think that really does get a great example of the heart of what you're describing in this article. I highly recommend it if you're listening this morning. It's in Touchstone Magazine, written by Dr. Andrew Latham. It's called Liberalism Occupied, and it really does give us great insight into why we are where we are here in 2019 in so many ways. So thanks for joining us here, Dr. Latham. Really appreciate your insights on Mornings with Carmen. My pleasure. We'll take a short break here, wrap up the first hour of the show, and preview what's coming up in hour two here for the 7th of November. Uh, Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for the day. Sure love that conversation with Dr. Latham. It's a pretty thick article in the sense that it's it's pretty in-depth, but it's worth sort of taking a couple hours to work through to understand why we are, where we are as a culture. Again, it's liberalism occupied on Touchstone magazine. Well, up next year on Hour 2, we'll be joined, first of all, by Dr. Raleigh Washington, and he and I are going to talk about the development of LeBron James's school and the importance of ministering to people in impoverished, impoverished communities. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.